Hello and welcome back to another episode of Holistic Healers. Today we are talking about relationships, but before I get into it further, I just want to say thank you all for supporting, following along, subscribing if you are. Um, If this is your first episode, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. I'm so excited to dive into talking about relationships because relationships are so integral. They're part of the human experience, right? And when we think about it, humans are in fact social creatures. And so with that comes relationships with others. So these could be, you know, your friends, your best friends, your family members, your coworkers, your neighbors, your intimate relationships, even with like ex-partners, um, relationships with your kids, even with your pets, right? Because we can't exclude pets. Um, we use relationships to not only become closer, find partnerships, but also learn about ourselves and grow as individuals. And so sometimes we can do a lot of learning individually when we're single. And sometimes the best, I think, best of lessons we learned come from the relationships we are in with others. So before I steal the show away, (laughs) um, I want to introduce our guest. So I invited someone on who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's also a certified sex therapist. I haven't had any sex therapist on before, so she's new with that. And she also specializes in Enneagrams. So if you're interested in that, I don't know much about it. I know a little. I believe I'm a two, (laughs) but we're going to go into all of it today. But in essence, she specializes in relationships and sexuality and helping relationships progress, not get stuck, learning how to do repair work, and basically everything in between. So I'll be taking notes today, but I'm so excited to have her on. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Lindsay Frazier. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. It's good to have you. I I'm so excited to have you on. Um, I know when we first were briefly meeting, we were talking a lot about your expertise. So let's just start off with that. Tell us a little about yourself and what you do. Uh, Yes, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, as well as a certified sex therapist um, and an IA accredited professional out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I have um, a small private practice where I specialize in relationships and sexuality utilizing the Enneagram. And I've been doing that for, gosh, I think I've had my practice now 11 or 12 years. So I've had the practice for a while. Okay. How do you integrate both of those together? I think you're the first person I know who's done both of those. The all three, uh, like the sex oh, the therapy. Three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the Enneagrams, the, those are so yeah. interesting. Yeah, I started using the Enneagram probably about eight years ago in my practice um, and why I feel like it is really helpful. And it's really helpful, actually, in relationship and sexuality work. Um, One is 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 that with the Enneagram. And so those of you that are not familiar with the Enneagram, you know, the way that I often will um, you know, present it is it's like there's nine different ways that all of us approach the world. Um, and then there's there's desires and wants and needs within those ways that we approach the world as well as sort of our biggest fear. Um, and so when it comes to couples work, what I will see is like we often believe that people experience reality the way that we do. And so we'll project our own reality upon others, what we anticipate or expect or how we think that they will think. Um, and, and what I always tell clients in my office is, is like, you know, none of us are experiencing the same reality at any given point in time. And so we can't speculate or understand exactly what the other person is thinking or believing or what their experience of the world is. But what the Enneagram does and why I love it so much <laughs> is it gives you little like peek into or insight into like why people do what they do right um and so it gives you insight into sort of what that biggest fear is um and as well as like what your motivations are and do um I'll often like just share myself so I'm, I'm the nine which is the peacekeeper um which means that like you know I want calmness in my environment um and my biggest fears I'll have disconnection 
um, or chaos or conflict sort of happening or occurring. Now, if I were to take the asserter, which is the eight, they don't care about that. They actually like to go into conflict. They have no problem being direct and assertive. And so even in that sense, like when I'm sharing those two different types, um, it's like if I'm to give the same advice to those two clients, it would actually be detrimental, right? Because like my eight who actually maybe needs to step back, think a little bit more, not necessarily jump in or be as assertive or aggressive as they can at times, depending on sort of their health level. Um, and then if you, but then on the other end, like my type, that's a nine, like they need to learn how to be not as passive and more assertive and more direct. So it gives you insight into sort of how people are as well as like, it helps me understand sort of like, okay, like what does this particular client in my office need? Um, and the Enneagram gives a great um, framework for that. So I'm not going to give the exact same thing to every single person that comes in. That's really interesting, especially like you were saying, like with the needs part of it, like we all need different things. We all see the world differently. And so you can't assume, especially as like a therapist or a counselor, like you can't assume everyone's going to be the same. So that's awesome. I love that strategy. Um, My clients have loved it too. Like they just, (laughs) they're skeptical and then they love it. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I've heard about them. I haven't worked with them. So is it like a is it just like a personality kind of test? Like, what would you consider it to be? It it, it It's kind of like a personality typing test, okay. but it's more than that because it's more about core motivations and it's sort of understanding. In a lot of ways, what I'll say is like the unconscious motivations that are driving you, right? And sort of the work that you need to do to be able to show up more effectively in the world and set up sort of what I will say is like, how, sort of how do you become your higher higher being? And the Enneagram sort of gives you a roadmap on how to do that. So it's, it is a personality typing system in some ways, but it's much more complex and bigger than that. And I could talk about it all day long. <laughs> um, but what I always tell people, it, it's it's different than like Myers-Briggs, right? Like where you like sort of have like here, so this is your type. It's it's more like you are I and, you know, you're I in TJ, for instance. And then there's sort of like a mechanism. Um, this one is like, here is your type and there's more of like a flavor. So like not all nines are going to look exactly the same, but the motivation or the core thing is going to be the same. Um, and sort of the, the pathway to higher self or more consciousness is going to be there within that. Um, and, and it depends, like you get people, like you've got, you've got therapists using it in their practice. You have people that are looking at it more from a spiritual realm or dynamic. So it's, it's also very popular sort of with ministers or people that are more spiritually focused and things like that. So you've got, it's, it's really interesting, the wide range of people that sort of use the Enneagram, um, though I tend to be more in the therapeutic realm and more over here um, as far as I use it, but like a lot of people use it in different, different avenues in different ways. Okay. Yeah. I, like I said, I had never heard about it before. Well, okay. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that because I've seen people like post about it, but I guess I haven't really spent the time learning about it but I think it's a really cool mechanism like you were saying that you can use in counseling to not only better understand your clients but also show up for them and what they need I think that's great um how do you calculate the Enneagram how do you do that you mean as far as like how do you figure out your type or yeah yeah. um so Oftentimes what I will say is, is there are some good, like free online tests out there that you can take, but I always have a disclaimer with tests because tests are not necessarily always accurate. So eclectic energies is a really good one that is a free, and I can, I can give you sort of that website for people to go to and understand that Um, the ready one is also a very good paid one. If you wanted to pay, which is through Russ Hudson's um, um, Institute, I think it's the Enneagram Institute. Um, And he is one of the sort of like bigger people in the community who has kind of brought this to to people and more mainstream. Um, And so he's also got his. um, But what I say with tests is is I I do have clients take tests just to kind of hone in on like what type you are. And then when we're in the therapy, we'll kind of help you because usually you're one of the top three, but not always. (laughs) In particular, there are two types that often test wrong. Um, which are your type six, which are your loyalists and my type, which is type nine, <laughs> the peacekeeper. Um, and so you and, and, and there's and there's multiple reasons for that. So one thing is for like peacekeepers, which is my type, is we can kind of see ourselves in every single number um, because we have capacity to understand. So like the, the gift of the nine 
is, is that I have the capacity to see all perspectives. Like I understand where you're coming from and this person's coming from, but we can almost get bogged down in that as well. So like when you're taking a test, if I can see myself in everything, I could test wrong. And, and the sixes, it's, it's almost, they're very skeptical. It's more skepticism and uncertainty and not trusting self. And so then it's almost a different mechanism, sort of how I will see that they may test wrong as well. And then other types do occasionally too. Um, so I always tell people take a test and then go find an IA accredited professional that can sit down with you and actually do more of a typing interview and help you sort of like hone in on like, what is, what is your type? Um, so in my practice, what I do is I have them take the online test to kind of hone them in. Um, and then I kind of like, as I see things that might look like a certain type or like, I'm like, hmm, you know, I, I noticed you type when you took the test, you typed as this, but I'm actually seeing a lot of characteristics of this particular type. What would you think about looking more at that type and see if that might fit you better. Um, and so, and, and to me, it's like, we ourselves are the experts on ourselves. Um, there's, a, it, there's a lot of controversy in the community of like, can you type yourself? Can you not? Oh. What I've learned is only you know yourself or the people around you who are the closest know you the best. That being said, someone might type wrong, but it is not my responsibility or anybody else's responsibility to tell them. It is their journey of discovery to come to their right type. Because anytime you tell someone who they are, what are they going to do? Yeah. <laughs> going to push back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going to get defensive. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to get defensive. Yep. So for for each of the numbers, can you, just because I'm so new to this already, um, do you have like a brief description about each of them or is that like way too simplified for each of the numbers? I can go through and just do like a really quick little yeah. um, brief summary, knowing that they're more complex than yeah. what I'm going to say here. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So for instance, um, with type one, type one is called your reformer or your perfectionist. Um, and so they want to be seen as good within their world. Um, their biggest fears are going to be seen as corrupt or wrong. Um, and so what you will see with ones in particular is they have a very concrete idea of what is right and wrong based on their morality. And, and it's very clear to say their morality because you could be a criminal and still have the idea of like right or wrong. So this isn't like society moralistic right or wrong. This is the individual's idea of, of right or wrong. So that would be your perfectionist. Um, your two is your helper um, and they want to be loved. Their biggest fear is they will not be loved. And so what they often will do is they sort of anticipate um, what people around them need or want and try to give that to them so they can earn love. I think um, that's and so me. It, that's you. <laughs> I think that's me. I, I'm trying to remember when I um, yeah. took the quiz kind of in prep for this podcast. I was just like, I want to know what I am, but I think I'm a two. I think you're that's a two. <laughs> so you would be a helper. <laughs> I picked a good career field. <laughs> it, well, it, it is interesting. I see a lot of like nines in twos um, as therapists. And, okay. and, and there's lot, all the other types are there too. But like in particular, I run into a lot of other twos and nines because <laughs> we're attracted to sort of the therapy field, I okay. find. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the three is your achiever. Um, and they want to be seen as, and I always use three words for them because either they want to be seen as successful, precious, or impressive. And depending on the three, they're going to connect to one of those three words. Their biggest fear is that others are going to see them as not those things. Um, and so that they're going to be, you know, I'm not impressive. I'm flawed. Oftentimes what I see threes do is they sort of try to anticipate, like, I've met you. What, who do I need to be to impress you? or to be successful to you. And so sometimes with threes, what I can see is that they oftentimes don't know who they are behind that because they spent a lot of their time trying to create the persona or the face of like what I think other people want me to be so that I can be accepted. Okay. So that's your three. Um, your four is um, your romantic or your individualist. Um, and what they want to be seen for, there's a couple things like, you know, a lot of times it'll come off like I want to be unique or special, but honestly, a lot of what fours do is like deep dive into fully understanding themselves, like wanting to know all the intricacies of who they are, 
who I am, who I want to be, um, and really that kind of like deeper dive into the self. They are um, highly emotional, so they can go from like really high highs to low lows. They can have a tendency to sort of like being in melancholy. Um, and they're really, I think it's interesting, like for me, so because I'm a nine, I don't like uncomfortable emotions, like fours, like they like it. They don't mind living there. And so it can be a really interesting dynamics. I'm like, why would you want to live there? <laughs> and so like what I always say with people that are fours, it's like people will try to like, well, you know, maybe cheer them up or make, it's like, they're okay with being in the depths of those, those kind of like what we might call darker emotions. Right. And they, and they're comfortable there. Like it doesn't bother them. So I think it's a really interesting perspective um, with fours in particular, because people assume that they don't like being there. And, and most of the time they don't mind it. They actually kind of like it. They find beauty in sort of those um, melancholic type of emotions and experiences. Okay. Um, and then your five is your intellect or your knowledge seeker. Um, and so they want to be seen as competent within the world. Their biggest fears they'll be seen as not competent. Um, they tend to have like, they will find an area of specification that they will hyper-focus on. Like they want to know all the information. They're going to watch the YouTube videos. They're going to read the books. They can kind of go down what I call the rabbit hole of information um, because their biggest fear is if I don't collect all the information around this thing, people are going to know that I'm not competent enough. Um, and so they're always trying to become um, more competent. And, and keep in mind when I'm talking about this, I'm talking at, about people at average levels of health um, because types will look different as they grow and they become more conscious. Um, your six is your loyalist, um, and they want to feel they want to feel security, safety, and reassurance within the world. Um, and so, they're what I will say is they can have a tendency towards worst worst case scenario. They anticipate the things that are going to happen, um, and they will often. It, I think sixes are really interesting because it's like they want reassurance, but it's like they oftentimes like know what they want. And they'll come to you and say, well, what do you think of this? And really what they want is they want you to agree with them on the thing that they've already decided is the right way to go. And then <laughs> when you don't, they get frustrated. So it's a very interesting thing in, in therapy that I will find when I have sixes because it can be confusing to partners, right? It's like, we well, are asking me my opinion, but because I'm not giving you the right answer, you're going to, yeah. you're going to like argue with me because they already have they already have the right answer but they want reassurance that that answer is okay <laughs> so. I can imagine that is a cause to a lot of arguments and what you see in relationships when you work with them <laughs> yeah it, it definitely can be and it's one of the complaints that um partners that are in in, in with sixes have okay <laughs> so. okay good to know mental um. note <laughs> Mental note. And then sevens are your adventurers um, and they want freedom. So their biggest fear is that they're not going to have lack of freedom or kind of be held down. And so they can tend to be what I call like, um, they can kind of go from thing to thing um, in relationships. They can, there can be a little bit of fear of sort of like being like trapped or held down or not being able to do what they want to do when they want to do it. Um, and so that can be hard for partners sometimes that are in relationships with sevens, though they know how to have a good time. They're usually joyful, um, even though underneath the surface are actually not as joyful as they seem. Um, but they're like the people like when you're at the party, like they're like the life of the party, right? Like they're the ones that kind of bring the party in. They tend to be, um, you know, highly adventurous and and all of those types of things as well. But in relationship, they can have kind of this like, ah, anytime you're going to like kind of tie me down. I struggle with that. And, um, you know, so a lot of, a lot of my sevens have to do work around, like, sort of like, how do I, how do I ask for the freedom I want, but stay connected to my partner versus fleeing, um, which can be a tendency that I can see with some sevens in relationships, but I have some in therapy that are like, that a lot of work and they are, you know, they've got longer term relationships and they're doing great, but it, it, they can, they can be confusing because it's, it's, um, I'm here and then I'm not here because I feel trapped. <laughs> so. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that yeah. I would imagine that would be difficult too to deal with. Like if you're in that or if if you're in a relationship with them, but it sounds like a lot of them have already done the work or the people that you've worked with have done work. And so, yeah, that's awesome. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What I what I do with sevens is, is like, you know, when, when partners are in relationship with people that are sevens, it's like, you know, giving them the freedom to go sort of like. Like, you know, when they want to go for the day and go explore and have fun, like, just let them kind of go do that. And don't, you know, don't expect that need, like having kind of like 
I'm gonna let you go have your freedom. You don't have to connect with me while you're going to do that. So you can have sort of that idea of like, I get my space, I get to be who I am separate from you. And then kind of that coming back. And so like, you know, sometimes when partners like need more of those touch points or connections, which I do work with them. Like if you're going like on a week vacation, you should probably check in with your partner. Right. Yeah. Um, but like, if it, if it's like for a day, like just let them go. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't need the connection. Right. Cause when you give them that, then they're more likely to come back and sort of feel like they have the freedom, but they have the connection to you. Um, and sort of within that. So I think it's, I will, I will, I will do what I call, especially like around sexuality. Cause I, I get a lot of ones and sevens in relationships. So I'm talking about structured, organized, and then wanting, spe- you know, you know, freedom and space. And so I, I, for sex, I'm like, it's called planned spontaneity. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where it's like, okay, set aside a morning where it's planned for the one, but it's spontaneous for the seven. <laughs> okay. That's a really interesting dynamic. That's really cool though. Cause it's, yeah, it's meeting both of their needs. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it is meeting both of their needs. And then your, your, your eight is your asserter or your challenger. Um, and their biggest fear is that they'll be controlled. Okay. And so what can happen is, is that they can push against or become aggressive if they feel like their, their autonomy is, you know, being threatened. So what it can feel like to other people that are really, and they're, and they're very blunt and they're direct and to the point. And sometimes they don't think about how they say things and how it can affect others. So if you've ever had like the friend, like, wow, that's just a little too honest. <laughs> they might be an eight. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, but what I, what I find for them is like for partners in relationship with them, sometimes it feels like that they're trying to control the partner and they're actually not, they're trying to defend against you controlling them. And so it's really important to kind of understand that in relationship with them. And like, what I always say is like, they have like, kind of like this outer harder shell, but they're actually the most soft in the inside and have the most tender heart. And so they're trying to kind of protect this tender heart in the inside with this hard exterior. Um, and so it, it's that ability to, to recognize. Um, and, and a lot of times my aides, like it's working on like, you know, how you say things does matter. I don't want you to like get rid of the part of you that is direct and assertive and to the point, but I don't want you to be aggressive. And so that ability to be assertive and directed to the point, but not aggressive and to leave space for others because they can dominate. Um, it, it's interesting with, with eights are the one type, the minute they step in my office or I meet them online, like I know that they're an eight, like there's no question. <laughs> interesting. It, it, it is, it is like a, you can physically feel them. It's just a very interesting thing where like some of the other types, like I can kind of feel them out, but you could be this type or that type at eight. I have no question when they walk okay. in. Okay. They, okay. They, they demand a presence. <laughs> okay. And then nines are next. And then nine, which is okay. my type is yep. the peacekeeper. Best for last. Um, and and <laughs> yep. They, nine is last. And what they want is they want um, calmness in the environment and um, they don't want conflict or disconnection with people. Um, they have a tendency to be, what I'll say is they can be passive aggressive. So like they do, so they, they, they will give on the facade of easy going and go with the flow. But in reality, they're actually oftentimes not. It's just that they're not saying what they need or want or desire. And you're going to get more of like people in my life. It's like, my husband knows, like, it's like a gut, gut reaction. Like, if I don't want something or I don't like something. He's like, okay, what's wrong? You know? And I'm like, and sometimes he'll know before I do. And it's like, we can control the environment more with like our energy and sort of like our body. And like, we think that we're easygoing and go with the flow, but in reality, oftentimes many of us are not, um, though we're very good at seeing all perspectives and understand like where you're coming from, the other person's coming from, um, but you can get lost in that. So it's also like, what do I want? What are my needs? What are my desires? Even though I can see every single perspective, it's okay if I have own, my own desires, wants, and needs. Um, the the biggest fear I think for nines in particular is like your presence won't matter, um, and so they're just kind of like you know my opinions, what I think doesn't matter, but in reality they do. And so a lot of that is working with nines. And I and like I said, like I didn't even realize. And this is funny. I've been a therapist using the enneagram for a long time. I didn't realize like how much I controlled people around me by how I felt. Like oh. like you like I want my environment calm, and so then I get frustrated or upset, but like, I'm doing it more passively to try to get other people in my environment to create it, to create the calmness that I want. It's like, I've been better at, for instance, um, I, I go and create my own calmness now versus expecting my family members to, cause like my, I have little kids, I have a, I have a seven and a five-year-old, like they don't want to be quiet. They don't yeah. want to be calm. 
<laughs> and they shouldn't have to be right. And I think with a lot of nines, it's like remembering like you want that. Not everybody else wants that. And so now what I do is like when I'm here during the day with my family or my kids, like I go up to my own room and I just kind of have my own, like I take an hour. I want it quiet. Either I meditate, I nap, I just sit there and stare at the wall, whatever. I just need an hour of quiet and calm to like be a good partner. And I suggest that for a lot of my nines as well. Yeah. Well, and I think once you start to integrate yourself more with this, like you'll start to realize just some more just insight about yourself and what you want out of life and what's going to make you feel happier or better about yourself. Yeah, it's huge that way. Right. And, and I think like, you know, like, again, for me, like that huge realization, like I've been doing my whole life, right. Getting frustrated with people because they're not keeping my environment the way that I want. And if I don't know that, or I'm not conscious of that, I continue to do that. Right. It's like the eight, if, if they're continually pushing against because they don't want other people to control them, but then they're hindering themselves from the deeper connection they actually desire and they want, like, and you don't even know you're doing that. Like, how does that affect sort of, you know, how, how we show up in the world in those, in that wounding and can, almost in some ways continuing to like wound ourselves based on those defense mechanisms that we had as kids that worked well then, but maybe don't work so well as an adults. And so I think the Enneagram really gives you insight into like, here's the mechanisms of like how you're operating within your type. And like, it's not working for you, but also there's some huge gifts that each of these types give, right? Like mine, like the ability to see everybody's perspective is like awesome. The aids, like I'm going to step in and I'm going to defend people that are weaker or, you know, like, like those things are great, right? You know, we, we need the sixes who are skeptical and thinking about like what might happen, right? Because I don't. <laughs> Sometimes I need yeah. someone to tell me those things, right? Like, I'm just like, things will work out. Yeah. And then the six is like, well, have you thought about this? this, this. I don't <laughs> like that you're saying that, but you are right. I should be thinking about those things. <laughs> All I'm doing right now is just thinking of people in my life. I'm like, they have to be a six or they have to be an eight. They have to be a nine. Like, now, after this podcast, I'm going to go home and I'm going to be like, all right, my boyfriend would be like, okay, what are you? Let's figure out what you are so that we could like try to figure out how we like mesh together and what we can work on. Um, I, as you were talking about each of them though, it made me think, I, I feel like in your practice, you're building a lot of empathy and compassion between partners. Like once they know either of their numbers, like you really start to understand your partner better and hopefully you know understand where they're coming from or why they getting upset or why they're not um do you think that's the case oh yes definitely i mean even more recently so i have um i have a i have a six and a five in relationship right and like what one of the things that fives will do is like when they're like kind of like what i call it when they're like into that thing that they're really like into um, they kind of go into like an internal castle, an internal place. Like they really don't recognize or see or notice when people are around them. And like one of the complaints that this partner had was like, you know, I'm talking to you and you don't respond. <laughs> right. Um, and, and when I kind of explained to her, like, you know, when, when a five is like, you know, doing the thing that they're really into, they actually it's not that they're ignoring you. They actually don't hear you or see you. And so like with this particular couple, like, so there were two things. Like one thing I said is like, you know, you should have a place, like when you're in your castle doing that thing that you go, you know, whether it's like, maybe you have an office and you go to your office and the door is shut. When the door is shut, it means I'm, I'm in that zone where like I'm working on the thing that I'm working on and I'm not going to have capacity to hear you or be present for you. Right. Um, but you need to communicate that to your partner. You can't just go there. And I have and a lot of my fives in particular do this in relationship. And it, it's really frustrating for their partners. It's like, where are you? I can't get you, you know, any of those types of things. And so it's like having that special place that sort of is your castle that you go to so other people know. And then also like being conscious of coming out of it and reconnecting with your partner. Um, and like even this particular circumstance too is like six or fives are more introverted. So they tend to process things internally. Um, they're going to think through things. It's going to take them a while. Um, and sixes tend to be external processors and want to process with the partner. Um, and so like that's a constant conflict that I see frequently with couples. Like you might have, you know, an internal processor, or an external processor. Um, when the external processor goes to the internal processor and says, well, what are you thinking? 
and they don't respond because they don't know what they're thinking yet or what their approach is on that yet. Um, it just, it just gives another framework to be like, well, most spies are introverted, which means they're going to be slower processors. you got to give them the information and give them space. You as the five, you let your partner know that you, you need space, that you don't have the answer yet. Um, and you need to know too, like your verbal processor, or for instance, in this case, a six, like she just wants you to listen. You don't necessarily need to solve the problem. And, you know, sometimes it's just that reassurance that like what she's thinking and what she's feeling is okay to think and feel. That's all she needs from you. Um, and so just that ability ability to, to do that um, as well. And there can be things like, so I'm I'm married to a five, so I'm talking about fives. You're like, so I um, know everything about them. So I know everything. No, I don't know everything. But <laughs> but um, with the nine five dynamic, we're both like what they call withdrawal types. And I won't go into all of these types of things, but like just the example is, like if I have like a nine five dynamic, um, we are really good at sort of doing our own thing in our own space and giving our partner that space too. But the problem can be, we're not always intentionally connecting. So like over time, if you have a couple that's this dynamic, they can just kind of like slip apart by doing their own stuff. Um, and so you have to be more intentional of like, okay, we need to be intent. Like, so we go, so every night right now we go for walks at night. Oh, nice. We, you know, we just go for a walk around the block. This is what we connect. And like, so there's an intentionality around that connection. Honestly, that's great for any couple. Like I tell, I tell every couple, like, you know, 10 minutes of connection a day is essential. Statistically, we know that if you do that, you will have a lasting bond. Of course, I want you going on date nights and I want you to have longer periods of time. Um, but you know, some of us are like, you know, like, like me, for instance, like we're, you know, I've got small kids and so it's hard, but like, if you're doing that 10 minutes, it it'll go a long, a long way. Um, and so some types can be more prone to withdrawal. Some types can be more prone to being more anxious, but it's just the, it's just the generosity. It's like, it's like a light bulb goes off for people like, oh my God, now I understand <laughs> like why, why you have been doing this. And it was never about me. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, the, and the, I like Brene Brown's definition of generosity, which is like, you know, all of us are doing the best that we can at any given moment, but in that process, we can still unintentionally hurt each other. And so like when we have that sort of stance with partners and relationship, it, it is a lot of like, I, you know, and that Enneagram creates that generosity. I now know because you're this type that these are your core motivations, these are your core fears, and I just hit your fear. Um. And now I have generosity of like why you had like a huge big reaction, right? Because the thing that you're going to have a big reaction about is not the thing I'm going to have a big reaction about. And now I can be like, you didn't, you didn't mean to have a big reaction. I just hit your biggest fear. Yeah. Yeah. You start to have more compassion, more empathy. And I bet yeah. there's like, you were kind of describing a lot more relief from clients. Like, oh, I get it. I get why you're doing this. Now I don't have to you know, keep bickering with you about it. Cause I, I know. Yeah, definitely. That is, that is, that is huge. And things, I mean, so before I use the Enneagram in my practice versus now it's like, we can just like make movement so much more quickly in therapy because it just gives that, like, it, it just gives that quick, like, Oh, Oh, that's why you do what you do. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm serious. I'm like, I need to, I need to go figure out. I think I'm a two, but I want to go like, look for sure and see what I am and see what my boyfriend is and like see see the dynamic between maybe we'll have another episode and talk about just my relationship <laughs> just kidding <laughs> I'm happy to if you want to <laughs> just to give a little insight to the listeners about how I kind of met you and how we got kind of introduced to each other I was looking at a post on your Instagram and it was talking about the long or what was it called it was like the cycle of long-term relationships I believe and basically, I was just, I've heard kind of about it before, um, just like in school and then just being a counselor myself. And, but I just, I guess the way that you put it and the way that you described it was so helpful. So I kind of wanted to talk about what is the long-term relationship cycle? What are the different stages? If you could explain that and just talking about it. Yeah. So, um, what I will say, so the, so you, the long-term relationship cycle, what happens in the first nine months to year and a half is we have what I call the infatuation period. So this is like where oxytocin and dopamine are at higher levels. This is that, that like 
feeling in love, feeling and experience that we have. Um, and that phase is going to last about nine months to a year and a half. And then after a year and a half, what happens is, is we move into what's called disillusionment. But I want to stop just for a second and talk about that infatuation period, because what happens is like you can never go back to the infatuation period after it ends. We actually are chemicals. So like dopamine and oxytocin, all these things that like actually we produce more of in the beginning of a relationship when we're attracted to someone go back to the normal levels. So you don't actually feel that same experience again, once you kind of enter into what I call like a longer term relationship, right? And so after about nine months, a year and a half, like you're entering into sort of now a long term relationship. And a lot of couples come in with that hope of like, can we go back to what it was like when we met? You can't. But I'm going to talk a little bit more as we go into the, the third part is, is like there or the fourth part, I guess, actually, <laughs> it's the fourth part, because there's two more steps between that um, of like, you can still have sort of like oxytocin and love feelings and all of that. But I think it's just really important to mention like this infatuation period, once it ends, it ends. And a lot of people will end relationships too in the constant seeking of this type of experience, hoping that it'll be different with the next person. And the reality is, is like, when you do that, you're just going to go from relationship to relationship to relationship every nine months to a year and a half, because it won't be sustainable. Talk about early relationships. I'm thinking about all my ones when I was younger, I'm like, oh, that makes sense why I left so early because <laughs> I was done with that stage. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think what's interesting too, is it's like, well, also, right. Like when we look at sort of movies or the things that are out there, like there's this romanticization of this. And so there's an idea of like, it can exist in a long-term relationship forever. I mean, I wish it could too, but well, I mean, do we though? Because it's kind of unstable as well. <laughs> we're anxious, we're excited. It's like, yeah. I mean, we, we think we would, but I think in reality, actually yeah. it would be pretty uh, destabilizing if that actually existed forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think also, I don't know if Disney kind of contributed to this, but I would imagine like all the Disney princesses and stuff and like the uh, happily ever, ever after, like all that kinds of stuff, like I bet all that plays a role in it. Well, well, and with Disney movies, right? They never show us what happens after they're married. Yeah, yep, that too. <laughs> when they have kids and when they go like through actual yeah. like milestones in a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and then we can move into the second stage, which I was saying, which is called disillusionment. And this is kind of what I talk about, like when those rose colored glasses come off, like you start to like see your partner more, more fully, right? Those pieces that sort of maybe you ignore or you didn't recognize. It's like, oh, like you do that. <laughs> like you leave your socks all over the floor or <laughs> you do this really annoying little habit. <laughs> Um, you know, like, oh, I have some, you know, I, I realize you're not great at empathy, but I didn't realize that before. And so you kind of have this disillusionment where you start to question like, gosh, why, why am I in relationship with this person? Like, why did I choose this person? Like, is this really what I want? Is this not really what I want? You might have more, you likely have more conflict at this point in time. And it, and it depends, you know, people have com many different conflict styles. So it could be more passive aggressive or it's body language and thoughts, or it could be more escalation and yelling and wh whatever else, or just a little, little bickering. Um, this types of things are going to start to happen sort of in that disillusionment phase. And the Enneagram type would give me some ideas of probably what your conflict management style is, but you're just going to feel more conflict. Okay. It can look, you know, multiple um, different ways. I always tell my, I have a lot of couples coming in and saying, oh, we don't have conflict at all. And it's like, yeah, you do. It's a bunch of passive aggressiveness. So I live in Minnesota. So we always say uh, Minnesota nice, which is basically passive aggressive. <laughs> and I can own that because I'm a Minnesotan and I live here too. But like, we are not as nice here okay. as we seem. We're very passive aggressive. <laughs> I have a lot of recovering people pleasers, I say <laughs> in my practice, myself included. <laughs> uh Number two, yeah. I was gonna say the two, yes, you probably are a people pleaser too. Um, and then, and then what happens? Sort of. Sorry, not like. No, it's yes. fine because I'm, I'm, I'm just saying I'm like I'm, I'm resonating with this. Um, and then after disillusionment, what we have is repair. And, and this is where you know I feel close and connected to you again. Maybe we get out of any sort of conflict. Um, 
you know, cycle we've been in, we should switch it up a little bit. We're taking accountability for our actions or recognizing what our part or piece in it is. Um, and then after repair, we move into what's called romantic connective love. And so like, what I'll say with that one, it's like, it's a deeper body feeling of like love. It's not the same kind of love that you feel in the beginning, but like, you still might look at your partner and have like that, oh, like, oh, I love you. Right. And like, I can feel that. And I can see that. And like, oh, you look really hot right there. Right. But it's not the same, like, oh my God, you're so hot. It's like, oh yes. I remember why I'm with you. I remember why I was attracted to you and why I chose to be in relationship with you. And then what will happen over the course of the relationship, as long as it ends, you'll go from romantic love back into disillusionment, and then you'll go into repair, and then and you just kind of keep doing this cycle the rest of your life, right? Um, whether you're it's with one person you're in relationship with, or whether you move into a different relationship, you're going to go through the same cycle. Um, where couples oftentimes get stuck is is they don't know how to do the repair. So they're stuck in disillusionment, right? And that's when they might come into my office, like we've had the same conflict over and over again. I'm getting more irritated, resentful, frustrated. I don't feel seen, I don't feel heard, I don't feel loved, sort of all these kind of un unmet needs. And so a lot of times what I'll say is, is like a really good indication that it's time to go to couples therapy is, 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 is if you have been in that, that disillusionment state for about nine months. Because you can get through them on your own. You know, it's not unusual. Like you might have, like I always tell couples, it's like relationships should not be a lot of work. That being said, you do have like times in your relationship that are more difficult, right? Like where you might be stuck for three months with sort of like one little conflict, but you can get yourselves out of it. If it's been nine months, sometimes even six months, depending on the, how how escalated or how conflictual that's that's the point that it's it's like I always tell people six to nine months of this happening it's time to step in and see a therapist because at that point you will be able to get through it much more quickly in therapy versus the couple that's waited five years or the couple that's I mean I've had couples wait 15 years with the same conflict and then there's so much stuff around it so it's like you know so six to nine months of the same conflict over and over again, and you can't resolve it, it's time to see a therapist. And then they can help you move into repair or, or determine the relationship's not a good fit and it's time to end it. Yeah. What are some common conflicts that you see that people get stuck in? Um, appreciation, love, do you see me? But the thing is, is they oftentimes, um, autonomy, freedom, most people don't even know what they're fighting about though. That's the thing. So like, as I'm saying, like, here's the common conflicts. It's like, they are going to come in with some um, specific. So it's like, um, so I'm trying to think in my office, it's been a salad. Someone made the salad wrong. Oh, but yeah, like deep down, <laughs> you're like, it, it, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was, I, I had it where it was about some dogs where like he had had a previous long-term relationship and they'd had these two dogs together. Um, and she came in saying the conflict was about the dogs in this particular circumstance. The conflict wasn't about the dogs. Mm -hmm. The conflict was, is, I don't know if you love me. I don't know if you prefer being in relationship with that previous partner that you had. So really for her, it was about, do you love me? And do you want to be in relationship with me? Yeah. And they were married but these dog every time she would see these dogs these dogs were representing that underlying need um or it thing that she she had right and so like a lot of people come in not even knowing what the need is um and so it'll it'll usually come in as some sort of like specific thing and i'll be like well that's actually not the issue no. tell me what's underlying that is it you don't feel respected you don't feel loved you don't feel appreciated you don't have autonomy or freedom I mean, you could, the list could go on and on and on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the nonviolent communications, uh, if people are familiar with that, has a really great, like, um, they have like a, a nice little needs list in there that kind of like points all these out for people that I kind of help them um, kind of hone in on because we don't often know what we're actually fighting about. I think I've talked about nonviolent communication on this app or on this podcast before, but there's a bunch of, I think I actually may have an attachment on my website for it, but essentially there's universal, 
universal needs. Can't even talk today. Um, we have universal needs and there's like nine different or there's three major categories, but then there's nine kind of within that. But basically there's like autonomy and connection and sometimes there's like beauty and there's a whole bunch of them. So I would definitely recommend looking at this list and seeing if any of them are resonating with any of the listeners because I would guarantee a lot of conflict stems from this. And then, you know, we can even work on, you know, how do you use these needs to communicate your feelings and then, you know, behavioral actions and stuff like that. But um, I had a question about repair. So you were given some like time frames about kind of the, each of the stages, but is there a time frame for repair? Like when we go through um, disillusionment and then into repair, is there like a specific, specific amount of time we should be spending there? Not necessarily. I think okay. it depends on the couple and it depends on the issue that you're addressing. Right. I mean, obviously we don't want you there for two years, <laughs> Right. but I think like saying like, oh, you should be out of it, you know, within a week or you should be out of it without a month. I mean, I've had some couples where it's like, we're working six to nine months and the repairs happening and occurring, but it's a really like, like, like infidelity. Like, let's use that for an example. Like maybe somebody had an infidelity, like you're not, you're not going to have the repair and all that's like a big thing, right? Like you're not going to have the repair in the month. The repair around that, for instance, might take a year, year and a half. And then there's going to be underlying wounding that comes up throughout. And so like, but then like, if you forgot to put the chicken in the oven, <laughs> you might be able to get through that in a couple of days. Right. Um, but if it, but even that one, putting the chicken in the oven, if, if there's been constant, you know, things around that too, it might be difficult. I think the thing to mention here too, is like a lot of this, like you have communication and conflict management stuff, but also for a lot of repair, it's, it's about trust. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I, a lot of times what I will say, like a really good resource around like dimensions of trust is actually Brene Brown's like braving. Um, she's got a book on that. So she's got some videos on that. And I know we could do a whole session on that, our whole <laughs> podcast on that. Um, but it's, 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 I use that a lot actually in my work as well, because the repair is a lot of times about rebuilding trust. Mm -hmm. And if you know what dimension of trust, um, is being damaged, then you kind of know, you know, where to, where to go. Like, so, so like, for instance, like if someone forgot to put the chicken in the oven for 10, 10 times in a row, well, then I don't know if you're reliable. Right. And can I count on you? And so it's like, then, then, then the repair to that would be like, can you consistently put the chicken in the oven for the next 10 times? I'm, I'm using a very simple analogy here. Cause I think it's easier for people to understand that than some of the more complex ones. But, but, but for instance, like now I can trust you and now the repair is happening and all of those types of things, which is a reliability issue, right? Like I can't trust that you'll be reliable. You won't do what you say you're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially like you were saying, like more complex issues like infidelity or just betrayal and feelings and trying to repair trust, like that can take a lot of time and also a lot of consistency. Like you need to see a change in behavior consistently and it takes time. <laughs> it does. <laughs> so it depends on how, um, how big the issue or concern is and yeah. how long it'll take to, to be able to have the repair. But there's, I think with all of these phases, I tell people besides the first one that really has more of like a concrete timeline to it, that, you know, that, um, that nine months to a year and a half, the rest don't really, I mean, they can be short, they can be long. I mean, you could be in romantic, romantic, connective love for years. Mm -hmm and not, not move into disillusionment, right? But you could also go through that same cycle in, in six months. Oh. So what do you think, like, if people are like, I want my relationship to last forever, like, okay, if I say that too, because I definitely would want that. Um, is there any, like, recommendations? Is it just, like, I guess, building up your toolbox to deal with disillusionment and repair? Or, like, how do you know how to extend your relationship longer assuming that you know the relationship isn't bad and it needs to end um is there any tips that you have for that well it's a there's a lot there's a lot yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> to that. yeah um i mean i think like one thing that i you know spoke of before is uh how essential it is to have connection right so you want to have you know that 10 minutes of undivided connection every single day, right? Couples that do this statistically have relationships that last longer. 
um, also continuing to grow together. So like one of the things that I will often do when couples are in my office is, is that I will draw like a Venn diagram, which is basically like you have two circles that kind of overlap. Um, so what I will say for long-term relationships to last or to work well, you need to have a balance of all three identities. So you have to have a balance of individual identities for both partners and a balance of a couple identity. Um, when couples are two together, relationships don't work well because what will happen over time with that is, is someone eventually is going to be like, oh my gosh, I don't know who I am. I have no autonomy. I don't know anything about myself anymore. I'm just this relationship. And I mean, it could take years to get there, but they will eventually have I mean, it's not an uncommon midlife crisis yeah. if you're too, if you're too like together and midlife crisis happen for multiple reasons. But one is like couples that don't have autonomy. And then if you're too separate and you have two independent lives and you don't have a lot of overlap in the relationship, typically the relationships are not going to last. Or if one person has autonomy and the other person's wrapped up in the relationship itself. So you really want to have that balance of like, we have our couple identity, the things that we learn and we do together. And then we have our, in, our individual identities. The interesting thing around sexuality, because a lot of people think like, you know, for long-term relationships to work well, we should be having lots of sex. Yeah. Um, depends. It depends on the couples. Like one of the reasons I became a sex therapist is, is that the way that I sort of thought about and think about sex is, is, is that it's, it's, it's about the people in your office. So like I have some couples in my office that have sex, not frequently at all. And they are happy and they have connected and they have a relationship that's, they have relationships that are going to last a long time. What's happening though, is both partners are satisfied with that and other types of intimacy are being met to fulfill them. So they have strong intellectual intimacy with the couple I'm thinking of. They have strong emotional intimacy. Um, and, you know, and, and the sexual, sexual intimacy just isn't, isn't a, it, it, they don't enjoy it, but it's not an essential part of their pie. Um, and so when couples come in with sexual difficulties, it's more like desire discrepancy. One person would like to be having sex more frequently than the other. And, and so, but, but any type of sexual dynamic can work well. I always tell couples to come up with their own definitions because there's sort of this idea of like, oh, we should be having sex three times a week. I don't know where this comes from. <laughs> I've heard that too. Or like, we need to at least do it like once to twice a week. And I'm like, I don't know. Cause I think I've even heard a statistic where it's just like, you know, even as you get older, like sex will inevitably just drop off not drop off completely, but will drop off just because of life happening, whether you have kids or whatever. And it's not always the case with everyone, but I, I hear that a lot. Yeah. It, it changes and shifts, right? It's so like, you know, when you're new, when you're new parents, like usually you're not having a lot of sex yeah. because well, one, you don't have the, you, you usually are tired. Um, if, if the mm -hmm. mom's breastfeeding you have prolactin that's coming into play and actually affecting desire levels for them. Moms can feel touched out. We don't have privacy. <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. You know, yeah. it's 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 just it's just harder. Um, and so I always tell you know couples like when you the first you know three two to three years really of kids like it's just it's just harder to be sexually connected. There's ways to work around that, and I mean, and then it's still hard typically when you know the more we go through life, the more context in life sort of affect our ability to be sexually intimate. And like, I think like, even like when we talked about, you know, before, like in that fatuation period, you have like dopamine and oxytocin and all these sort of things that are kind of like helping you want to have sex more. Right. Um, and then like, even like when you say as people get older, hormones shift and change, um, there might not be the hormonal push to have sex as much. Maybe my body doesn't function the way that I want it to be. And so like, I always talk about like what the definition of sex is as well, because sometimes we might not be able to have intercourse anymore, but if we think about other dimensions of touch being important and essential, we can still have very satisfying sex lives all the way until our eighties, nineties, if we want. Do, I guess kind of switching gears a little, but do, do you use love languages? Do you talk about love languages in your practice? Do you think they're helpful? I do use them sort of as a, as a tool to understand each other a little bit, a little bit more. I'll also, um, what I tell people is it won't fix things, Yeah, <laughs> but it gives you a tool to know, again, like that generosity piece, like knowing what your partner's love languages are so you can be more um, intentional about giving them because we often give what we want 
and not necessarily always what our partners need. And so the, the, the love languages gives a really good tool or insight into like, how can I show my partner love? Yeah. It makes me think of like what we were talking about, like with, if like sex falls off, like maybe someone still desires like that touch or even just quality time. And that could be something that you can utilize. Yeah, I actually, so, um, I always think of like, there's, there's kind of five different types of intimacy that we need. And I actually separate physical intimacy from sexual intimacy, because to me, they are different things. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so like, you know, the types of intimacy people usually need is emotional, um, spiritual, intellectual, physical, and, and sexual. Okay. Yeah. I heard you mention like the differences of all those or you started to, and I was just like, oh, that's cool. I've never heard that. <laughs> And, and, it, and the reason I separated them, because like a lot of times, if you look, you'll find that people will put the physical with the sexual, right? And like, I actually did this um, workshop with a colleague, Valerie, and Valerie and I were the ones that sort of like sat down and talked about sort of how we do this. Um, so I want to say like, Valerie also helped me yeah. <laughs> around this. She's a, she's a um, therapist in, in North Carolina as well. And she's part of my like Enneagram and sexuality group. And so we've collaborated and done stuff together. But when her and I were talking it was really important that they were separate because sometimes we just want physical affection and physical touch that is not about sex. And when you lump it into the sexuality pool, it can be confusing for people. Or like, I can't ask for just physical touch because I'm assuming physical touch means we have to have sex. And so like having them as two different buckets and helping you know, people um, understand, you know, I often have people create little pie charts and this actually came from Valerie and I loved it. And like we create little pie charts and we figure out sort of like, okay, like what's your pie chart of intimacy and what do you need? And, um, you know, and then you can tell your partner, like, what is the definition of physical intimacy for you? What is the definition of sexual intimacy for you? And they could be different or they could be the same. That's they okay. can be the same. Yep. It depends. And sometimes, and sometimes it's like one leads to the other. And sometimes I don't want one to lead to the other. Yeah. So, um, I want to start wrapping up a little bit, but you have so much information, you have so much expertise, and I feel like there's going to be so many people that either want to follow you or start working with you. So where can people find you, um, or start working with you? Um, my website is lindsayfraser.com and that's L Y. N-D-S-E-Y-F-R-A-S-E-R.com. Um, and then I'm also on Instagram, just at Lindsay Frazier LMFT. Um, those are probably the best two best ways to reach me. Um, my email is also, it's, it's just Lindsay Frazier at lindsayfraser.com. Or, or Lindsay, sorry, it's Lindsay at Lindsay. I almost got that wrong. It's Lindsay at lindsayfraser.com, um, which will also be on the on the website as well. Um, and so either of those ways, I do have a Facebook page, but I'm not on there as frequently. And so I always tell people that the best ways, if you're trying to get in contact with me is either through Instagram or my email or my website. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and before I close out, I asked this from everyone that's been on the show. If you could recommend one thing to any of the listeners listening, uh, what would you say to them? What advice would you give them? Anything. <laughs> Um, I, I think that like, you know, when we talk about that relationship long-term cycle um, is, is that, you know, recognizing that it is a cycle and that it is a system and that you continue to go through. So like even, you know, so you have got that infatuation period at, that's that first nine months to a year and a half. But after that, like you're going to go through disillusionment, you're going to go through repair and you're going to go through romantic love. And it will continue to go, you'll continue to go through those three. Um, I think that a lot of times when we hit disillusionment, we're afraid that that means something about the relationship that we're in. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it is time, like the relationships run its course and it's time to end. But oftentimes it doesn't mean anything. It's like that reestablishing of boundaries or expectations, that opportunity for new growth or a new relationship. Um, and so looking at disillusionment is more as the opportunity, like this is our chance to shift things that are not working for us so that we can move to ro more romantic love. And so like, to me, it's just knowing that you will continue to go through all three of those phases and they're natural and they're normal. And just thinking of it, like we're just in our disillusionment phase. We have an opportunity mm -hmm. to do something different and move more into what we need and want in our relationship. Yeah, That's my advice. 
Yeah, I thank you for that. I like that reframe too, because I think even for me, I know I've gotten stuck in that um, stage and I'm like, is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with my partner? Like, is this a bad relationship? When in all honesty, like you're saying, like you're saying, like more often than not, it just new relationship, we can change into something better. Awesome. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It was good to hear from you today. Yes, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And thank you to all the listeners tuning in, subscribing, um, following along. I'm on Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, you know, kind of wherever you get your podcast streaming from. So definitely go check it out if you haven't already. And you guys know my Instagram, you know my Gmail. So feel free to reach out, especially if you want to be the next guest on the show. So thank you so much uh, for listening and I will talk to you all soon. Bye.